And if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love for you to join me in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Uh, this, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be starting, I'm going to start a new series of messages. I'm going to preach through the book of Hebrews in 10 weeks. It'll be, it'll be a feat, but we'll have a good time going through it uh, together. Uh, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful, wonderful book. It's an amazing book. It's a book of better than. It's a book of superiority. Do you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, have been, it's been called the fifth gospel, is what they've called it, the fifth gospel. All through the book, you find key words like better. Jesus is better. He's better than anything you can imagine. In fact, I've titled this series of messages, Jesus, the more than excellent Savior. And all through this wonderful letter to the Hebrews, we find what Jesus or who Jesus is more excellent than. It is an amazing, amazing study. In the first three verses here, you see that Jesus is more excellent than the prophets. And it's vitally important that we understand what they thought of the prophets back in biblical days. The biblical day prophet was something that uh, was ordained by God. The ordained by God prophet would communicate the word of God to the people of God. And through that uh, communication that that prophet had, they would either obey or disobey. But the prophet could not forgive anyone's sins. The, all the prophet could do was communicate condemnation or repentance to come to God. They couldn't forgive any sin at all. And what happened here when the, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter, uh, the writer wrote it in such a way that he was addressing three types of individuals. He was addressing, first of all, true believers. There were some true Jewish believers, some Hebrew believers that loved Jesus with all their heart. But here's what was happening. The persecution of the culture was so great that they were choosing to go back after their old way of life. They wanted to go back after Judaism because it was too hard to be a Christian. There was too much persecution. And the writer of Hebrews writes and he's saying, Look, don't do it. Don't go back to the old way of life. Don't mix the two together. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not Jesus plus all these sacraments that you have in Judaism. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, and we're going to grow up from there. So he was writing, the writer of Hebrews was writing to these Jewish believers, encouraging them, don't let culture impact your walk with Jesus. And I'm just going to say, in, in the world that we're living in today, that is a truth that we need to receive. We do not need to let our culture... Uh, turn us away from Jesus Christ. We don't need it to affect our relationship with Jesus. And I promise you, if you are in the culture, that is, if you continue uh, to deal more with the current television series rather than the series in the Word of God, you'll go after the culture and not go after Christ. And so we're challenged today as true believers that have Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord to grow up in Jesus and don't let the culture influence us, but let us influence the culture. And then there's a second category of people that he's going to write to, and that is convinced unbelievers. So what do you mean by that? 
I mean, there were unbelievers there, some Hebrew unbelievers who knew who Jesus was. They knew that he lived a sinless life. They knew that he died on Calvary's cross. They knew that he rose again. Some of them even saw these miracles. And they were convinced in their mind that Jesus was who he says he was, but they weren't convinced in their heart. And so they were lost and they needed Jesus Christ. But, Paul, but the writer of Hebrews is going to write to them and encourage them. He's going to say, look, there's a warning here for you. If you don't trust Christ, you're going to go to hell. That was the second category of people that he was uh, encouraging. And then the third, the writer of Hebrews was also encouraging uh, unbelievers, period. They, did, they didn't believe in the Messiahship of Jesus. They didn't believe in him at all. And they just flat rejected Christ and the writer of Hebrews is going to encourage them and say, listen, pay attention to what I'm saying. You know who Jesus Christ is. If you die in your sins, you die without Christ and you go to hell. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. But I've met many individuals that say, well, I don't understand the book of Hebrews. It's a, it's a difficult book to understand. It's a difficult letter to understand. Uh, because number one, we, we, it's written to Jews. No, don't look at it like that. Look at it as though it's written to Christians. Is it written to Jews? Yes. But the whole word of God is written to Christians. This is written to born-again children of God to help us to grow. And we must hear what the Word of God is saying. A lot of times we don't hear what the Word of God is saying is because our hearing stopped up. It reminds me of a story. This is a true story. I read this story this week. There was a man in Leeds, England. He went to the doctor to have his hearing checked. And uh, he got to the doctor and the doctor took out one of the hearing aids, took a hearing aid out of his ear. Immediately the man's hearing got better. Immediately. After further examination, the doctor found that this man had the hearing aid in the wrong ear for 20 years. 20 years. He had suffered this hearing loss because he had the wrong, he had, his, he had the right device, but he had it in the wrong ear. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you, we have the right book. We just got to get it in the right place. It's got to get into our heart. And this is a beautiful book to help get us, the Word of God, get it into our heart. The biggest question people have is, who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Because uh, this is one of the greatest mysteries that, that it seems that theologians have today. There are really basically three possible authors. Three possible authors. The first, and, and this comes from... From tradition, really, to be honest with you. Let me give them to you. The first one is called the Alexandrian tradition. The Alexandrian tradition. The Alexandrian tradition simply states that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Now, let me give you the reason why they think, they, uh, they think that, or how did it come to that. Uh, Clement of Alexander, he was a theologian. He was around A.D. 150 to 215. And he stated, he said that Paul wrote Hebrews and Luke translated it into Greek for him. Now, there are many, many, many internal evidences in the book that point to a Paulian authorship. Let me give them to you very quickly because I want us to have all three of them. Number one, the first thing is the Pauline closing. If you look at Hebrews chapter 13 and you read that closing, it very similarly mirrors 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 17 uh, uh, and through 18. In fact, when you look at that, you think, man, Paul must have wrote Hebrews because it looks very similar. 
Those closings look very similar. Number two, here's a second uh, evidence. The phrase, the just shall live by faith. We find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. You also find that in Paul's other writings, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. It would make sense. Number three, here's a third one. The writer of Hebrews, according to Hebrews 13, 24, is in Rome. The time in which this was written, Paul was in Rome. It would make sense that Paul would write this. There's an internal evidence, Hebrews 13, 24. And number four, according to Hebrews 10, 34, it was written by someone who had been in prison. Paul had been in prison. It would make sense that Paul would write this since he was in prison. So there's another internal evidence. Number five, here's one, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. It was written by someone who said they were friends with Timothy. Well, Paul had no greater friendship with anybody than Timothy. I mean, Timothy was his son in the faith. He loved Timothy. Those are five really good, strong evidences inside the letter to the Hebrews that point to Paul as being the author. But there's also one major external evidence that exists outside the realm of Hebrews. And that's found over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter states that Paul had written a letter to the same Hebrew audience that Peter addressed, uh, only uh, Hebrews, only the book of Hebrews, appears to fit that description. So we find that the Alexandrian tradition says that Paul wrote this letter. There's a second tradition, and that is the African tradition. The African tradition. The African tradition simply states that Barnabas wrote this letter. Barnabas wrote the letter. Barnabas was a missionary. He was a companion of Paul. Uh, he was also a Levite. It would make sense that a Levite would write this letter. That's a strong evidence uh, there. Tertullian began to thinking about this. And early church scholarship, even modern scholarship today in the Bible, says that Barnabas has to be uh, the writer. Although it's very difficult, in my opinion, to prove the authorship as being Barnabas. But one thing is for sure, he does possess the apostle apostolic authority according to Acts chapter 14 verse 4 and 14 so there is a possibility that Barnabas is the author that is the African tradition and then last of all there is the uh, Roman tradition the Roman tradition holds more than anything that it's anonymous but just like uh, those from Rome often do uh, especially Roman Catholics in regards to who the author of Hebrews is they uh, generate a plethora of individuals they say it's anonymous but it could be Luke, Apollos, Silas, Clement of Rome, Peter, Philip, Priscilla, Titus and, and on and on and on uh, one of the questions I get most often when we study or when I'm talking about the, this wonderful letter to the Hebrews is what do I believe? Who do I believe the author is? I've met some pastors that just absolutely will not commit. They don't want to do it for some reason. I don't know why. I'm willing to commit today. I'll tell you who I believe the author is. I believe the author of the book of Hebrews is God. It's been verse 1. Look at what it says. God. You see it there? But I do believe that God used a man to write this, and I believe the hand or a hand to write I believe the hand that God used to write this was Paul. I think the evidence is very strong. I know many scholars disagree, and you may disagree with me on that as well. Uh, that's okay. That doesn't hurt my feelings uh, at all. Uh, the bottom line is we know that the Word of God was written by God. And the hand that he used, it really doesn't matter. However, in regards to this letter, it's absolutely amazing to me how, how Paul is proclaiming, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, that Jesus is more excellent than anything you can ever imagine. 
And in the first three verses, he talks about how Jesus is more excellent than the prophets. Listen to what Arthur Pink says about the prophets. He says this, Israel regarded the prophets with the highest veneration. For they were the instruments Jehovah had, uh, had used to employ the giving forth of the revelation of his mind and will in Old Testament times. But, divine as they were in their communications, they were but introductory to something better and grander. According to Arthur Pink, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, as important as the prophets were, the prophets paled in comparison to Jesus. Jesus is a more excellent prophet. And we see here in this text the reason why. We see how Jesus is a more excellent prophet. And if you found your place in Hebrews chapter 1, let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3, and let's study this together with what time we have left. If you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? We have time for it. Look at what the Scripture says. God, who at sun-dried times... And in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Boy, I'm telling you what, there is absolutely no hi, how you doing, grace, peace, mercy, love from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm so glad you're born again. We don't see any of that here. It goes straight to the quick and says, God, he spoke to us in times past in many ways, and in doing so, we have heard from him, and the bottom line is simply this. God communicates with mankind. God communicates with mankind. We clearly understand that. And then throughout the course of this introduction of this letter, we see that uh, Paul gives us how Jesus Christ is more excellent than the prophets. This morning, I want to give you the reasons why Jesus is more excellent than the prophets. Let's look at the first one. Number one, he is more excellent in his proclamation. He is more excellent in his proclamation. Did you see what uh, the Bible says? The Scripture tells us that God in sun-dry times. If you have your pen, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I would underline that word sun-dried times. That means many. Sun-dry gives us a beautiful picture or illustration as many times. He's saying there that God in many times communicated with us in times past. It's a reference to Genesis 3.15 where God spoke to Adam and told Adam that the Savior would come from the seed of woman. It's a reference back to Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 where God spoke to Abraham and told him that the Savior would come from his seed. It's a reference back to Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 when God communicated to Jacob and told him that the Savior would come from the tribe of Judah. It's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God spoke to David and told David that the Savior would come from his house. It's a uh, reference to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where God spoke to Micah and told Micah that the Savior would be born specifically in Bethlehem. It's a reference to Isaiah 7, 14, where God spoke to Isaiah and told him that the Savior would be born of a virgin. It is many times. God spoke in many times, in sundry times. 
But the Bible also says that he spoke in verse number 1 in diverse manners. Diverse manners means many ways. Not only did God speak many times in the Old Testament, but he also spoke in many different ways. To Moses at Sinai, he spoke with thunder and lightning. We know that in Ezekiel and many other of the prophets, he spoke with visions. God spoke to Daniel in a dream and in dreams. And God spoke to Jacob by an angel. The bottom line that you take from verse number 1, you walk away from the proclamations of Jesus just simply saying that God's desire is to communicate with man. He wants to communicate with us. And by the way, when God communicates with us, it ought to change your life. Every time God communicated with someone, it changed their life. Think about it. Abraham had faith to sacrifice his son, but God made a provision. Moses had wisdom to stand against Pharaoh. When God spoke to David, he had strength to stand against Goliath. When God spoke to Daniel, he had determination to do what was right in a culture that was always doing wrong. And when God spoke to Mary, she had the courage to bear the Son of the living God. God always changes a life when he communicates with a life. Oh, dear friend, God's desire and always has been to communicate with man. God still communicates with us today. The Bible is clear. The Bible says that he did this in sun-dried times and in diverse manners in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. He says he did so specifically by those prophets. But watch this. He says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. God continues to speak and he speaks to us today by the Son of the living God. When you think about how God communicates with us today, we ask ourselves the question, what is the communication? What is Jesus proclaiming? What is the pro proclamation that Jesus has for us? Well, Jesus said in the Word of God that he was the bread of life. The Bible says that he, Jesus said of himself that he was the light of the world. Jesus said that he was the door. He was the good shepherd. He was the vine. He was the resurrection and the life. He said that he was the way, the truth, the life. No man would come to the Father but by him. No prophet could say that. No prophet could complain, uh, could, could compliment that. No prophet could say anything towards that. Jesus is a more excellent, uh, is a more excellent Savior. He's more excellent than the prophets because his proclamations communicated how we get to God. You see, the prophets could only communicate condemnation. They could only speak of coverings. But Jesus spoke of cleansing. Jesus communicated the truth of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse you of your sins. No sin, no a prophet could communicate that truth. Only Jesus can save us all. Jesus is more excellent than the prophets because he, his proclamation is the gospel. Number two. The second thing I want you to notice is Jesus is more excellent than the prophets in his property. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 2. The scripture goes on to say, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom, here it is, he hath appointed heir of all things. I would underline that word heir of all things. Why? Because it's speaking of God's inheritance. It's speaking, or it's speaking of Jesus' inheritance. It's telling us here, if you would, that Jesus inherits all things. The prophets could never claim an inheritance like this. 
Jesus could. Jesus' property is everything. He is greater than the prophets because Jesus has it all. It reminds me of Psalms chapter 2, verse 8, when the Bible says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. What is it that Jesus inherits? He inherits the nations. What is it that Jesus inherits? Well, the New Testament says that the apex of his inheritance is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. The Scripture says that he may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Dear friend, what's in the saints? Dear friend, what's in me is Jesus. Oh, dear friend, the inheritance of the saints is the relationship that we have with God because God owns it all. He owns you and me if you're born again. Oh, dear friend, if you've got Jesus in your heart, you've been saved, you're a Christian, you know Jesus, he knows you. And that's why I can say I can swing over hell on a dry corn stalk. Why? Because I know that Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm his property. Paul was encouraging the Hebrews and praying that his readers would understand how highly they are valued in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, you are valued in Jesus Christ to the point that all the inheritance of God, when you got born again, when you got saved, when you received Christ as your Savior, according to Romans 8, 17, you are a joint heir with Jesus. You're the property of Christ who has valued you far, far beyond measure. Jesus is more excellent than the prophet's. Because his property is all-inclusive. Let me show you a third thing. The third thing I want you to see is Jesus is, a more, excel is more excellent than the prophets in his power. Man, I tell you what, those prophets had great power. Man, they could call down fire from heaven. But they paled in comparison to the power of God. They paled in comparison to the power of the Son of God. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 2. The Bible says that not only does he appointed heir of all things, but in the latter part of verse 2, by whom also he made the worlds. The Son of God made the worlds. Jesus Christ was the creator of the universe. Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Since Scripture says God did the creating, these verses here that we find in Hebrews are a testimony of the deity of Jesus Christ. The prophets certainly are inferior in this area, for Christ even created them. Christ is the creator of all things. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was fully God. It was absolutely God. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says, For of Him and through Him, and to him are all things. Everything is because of Jesus. He's the creator of all. Jesus is more excellent than the prophets because his power is almighty. Number four. The fourth thing the writer of Hebrews says in verse number three is Jesus is more excellent than the prophets because of his person. His person. Notice what the scripture says in verse number 3. The Bible goes on to say, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. 
Jesus is more excellent in his personhood. Christ presents God in a unique way. For he, unlike the prophets, is God. Jesus is God. The prophets could only portray God through words and types and figures. Christ, however, presents God to us. He is God himself. The Bible says he's the express image of that person. The express image gives us the idea that he is the exact reproduction. He is the exact uh, element, if you would, the mirror image. He is who he says he is. He's giving us the truth that Jesus doesn't simply reflect God's love. He is God's love. Jesus is the exact representation of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think William Barclay got it, got it right when William Barclay said in his commentary that the glory of God is not the glory of shattering power but it's the glory of suffering love. Jesus loved you enough that he suffered and died for you. In his personhood, he was 100% God. And 100% man. The term glory speaks of his deity. The term image speaks of his humanity. Jesus is more excellent than the prophets because he's divine. He is the divine son of the living God. Let me give you the fifth one. There's a fifth reason in verse number three. The fifth reason that how Jesus is greater than the prophets is he's greater in his preservation he's greater in his preservation look at what the Bible says in verse 3 follow along with me the Bible says and he's upholding all things by the word of his power may not underline that why because it's speaking of God's preservation God did not just create the world or Christ did not just create the world in the universe and then just let it sit out there on its own and run its course no, uh, Christ not only created the universe, but preserves it too. Christ preserves the universe in a precise and effective way to the point that creation testifies to the glory of God. As the, the book of Psalms says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it is done with such great precision. The text says that it's done by the word of his power. Prophets had no power like that. They could not speak worlds into existence and preserve worlds in precise matters. I find it so unique and humorous today. I, I love to watch science channels. I, I enjoy that so much. I was watching a science documentary, and I, and I find it almost as if it's a comedy at some point because uh, they talk about uh, this Big Bang Theory and all of the, the things that uh, happen and what they think happen and what they theorize things happen when the Bible is very clear what actually did happen. I was watching one program and it was talking about the Tayu Neutrino. The Tayu Neutrino. This is the smallest and very last uh, particle that science has ever found. For English majors, if you would, it's like looking at the alphabet and finding the letter Z. They have found the letter Z in response to particles. Oh, they were so excited. 
We finally have all the letters, all the alphabet, all, the, all of the things that we need to, 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 to say, here's how the Big Bang happened. We got it, we got it, we got it. There's only one problem we don't understand. We don't understand how it holds itself together. We hadn't figured that out yet. I was watching another program and they were talking about the expanse of the universe, how the earth is expanding and the, and the quandary that scientists seem to find themselves in that as the universe expands, as, as they say that it's expanding, how then does the expanse of this universe not just sling us out into, into space? How, how is it that, that we just don't, don't uh, leave gravity? And why is gravity staying consistent? Why is it always the same as the universe is expanding and the sun's getting further? It's not getting further away from the earth, uh, the Milky Way, as it's, as it's growing and expanding, it's not getting away from each other. Everything seems to be in place, yet everything is expanding. How is this happening? I'll tell you how it's happening. Jesus said, be there. And it sits right where it is. The Bible says in the Word of God, the Bible tells us right here that he's upholding all things by the word of his power. He says, stay in this day. He says, grow when it grows. Jesus is the one by which he holds all things together. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 17, he says, And if he is before all things, and, he is, and by him all things consist. That is, by Jesus Christ, all things are held together. Jesus is more excellent than the prophets because his preservation is precise. You know why you don't go slinging off into space? It's not, listen, the world will say it's gravity, but I'm telling you, Jesus is holding it together. Why does the earth circle around? and uh, Why does the earth move in the way, in the direction that it is? Because God said so. The scriptures are clear that God is the ones that hold all things together. He is greater than the prophets because he preserves us. He is greater than the prophets because of his person. He's greater than the prophets because of his power. He's greater than the prophets because of his property. He's greater than the prophets because of his proclamation. And number six, watch this. He's greater than the prophets in his purging. Notice what the scripture says in verse number three. The Bible goes on to say, and in the latter part, notice it, when he had by himself purged, our sins. Jesus purged our sins. This is the work of Christ on, on Calvary. This is the work of Christ on the cross. The prophets could only warn. The prophets could only condemn uh, about sin. But Jesus is the one that cleanses sin. Hebrews chapter 10, 10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I love what uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 18 and 19. In fact, it would behoove us and do good if we found that passage. Let's look at that passage together, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. We finished preaching through 1 Corinthians, and here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, Paul is going to be talking about this issue of purging, the purging of our sins through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at what the Bible says in verse 18 and 19. The Bible tells us there in the text, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by 
Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, what God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the, war, the word of reconciliation. You know what Paul is saying right there? Jesus Christ, one time, once and for all, purged our sins on Calvary's cross. Those that have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, those that have received the Lord, those that have trusted the Lord, not in their head but in their heart, their sins have been purged, their sins have been cleansed once and for all. He's strongly telling us you don't have to be saved five and six times. You only need to be saved one time, but you need to grow up in Jesus Christ. He is more excellent in his purging. Let me show you something about this word purge. This is fascinating. Notice what the text says. The Bible says that he purged, purged our sins. That word purge there is in the aorist tense. In the aorist tense. Now, why is that important? Let me show you this. Let's pretend that this corner to this corner is time. That's time. What the aorist tense means in the Greek is that at some point in time, Something happened. What he's referring to, the something that happened at some point in time, Jesus purged our sins in the aorist tense. So he purged our sins. He died on Calvary's cross and was raised from the dead at some point in time. Let's put it right there. It happened at some point in time. But it has no denunction, if you would, or no continuation or no regards. That's the word I'm looking for. It has no regards to time. What he's saying there is when he purged our sins, those Old Testament saints that believed Jesus Christ had died, was, going, was coming, was going to die on the cross, and was going to raise again on the third day, all of those Old Testament saints are saved by faith. Those present-day saints that watch Jesus die and rise again the third day, they are saved. And those that are after him, even till today, we are saved. He purged it once and for all, never to be done again. He tells us here that his purging is greater than any prophet could ever have. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there'd be no remission. There was a definite point in time where Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died for our sins. He was buried for our sins. And on the third day, thanks be unto God, he rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He's greater than the prophets because of his purgings. He's greater than the prophets because his purging is complete. Number seven. Here's the final one. Oh, I love this one. He's greater than the prophets in his position. He's greater than the prophets in his position. Look at what the Bible says. The scripture tells us in verse number 3. He says, after he had purged our sins, watch this, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Dear friend, when you look at the prophets and you see the honor that they had, the position that they had, they were honored by God. They had great position, but it pales in comparison to the position that Christ held. The prophets stood and proclaimed and they uh, preached and they preached their message and they preached what God had put on their hearts, but they could never sit down in completion. They had to go from town to town. 
They had to go from city to city. They had to go from event to event. They had to continue and they could not rest. They continued with the work of their proclamation. But the Bible says that Jesus, He is greater. He is a more excellent Savior. And He is more excellent than the prophets because after He had purged our sins at that moment in time, He sat down at the majesty on high. Oh, that term sat down is such a fascinating verb. It's giving us the idea that it's in direct contrast to what the Old Testament saints had to do in order to get their sins forgiven. Oh, time and time again they had to come back and come back and come back and they had to make sacrifice. Why? Because that old way of doing it only covered their sins. It never cleansed them of their sins. And they needed someone to cleanse them of their sins. And that our sins have been cleansed through Jesus Christ if you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. Psalms 100 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Oh, dear friend, when you see that term, sat down or is sitting down at thy right hand, this gives us a mood that's called the indicative mood. It's a simple statement of fact saying that it happened, that was proclaimed in Old Testament. It has happened in New Testament. Jesus is more excellent than the prophets because his position is majestic. He's at the right hand of God. I know of no greater commentary on the Word of God than the Word of God. The Word of God is the greatest commentary. And as a matter of fact, I love the commentary on this particular portion of Scripture. It's found over in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Uh, Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 just briefly. And I want you to notice Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Here in this text, we see the position of Jesus. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse number 11, the Bible says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Did you see what what just was said? He says there that those sacrifices can never take away sin. They only can cover them for a season. But notice what happens. But, I love this part, this man, who? Jesus. This man, Jesus, the Bible says, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is the wit of witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make within them those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Where's the law of God now? Is it the Ten Commandments? No, it's the love of God in our heart that tells us when we've sinned or not. Thank God for the position of Jesus Christ. Only the Son of God can save us in such a capacity that he saved a wretched sinner and he sat down because that sin has been saved. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful the weather has changed. Man, and I hope it doesn't change back to the way it was. Good night. It was hot. 
And during that hot season, I mean, just before it killed the grass, you go out there and cut it. And man, you just sweat. I mean, it just pouring off of you and you're hot, but you're done. And you walk on over to the front porch and you done got some water out of the hose pipe. Can I get a witness right there? And you sit down on the front porch and you look at the work you've done. The grass is cut. The the, uh, hedges are trimmed. Uh, You've weeded out the flower beds. You've weeded around the trees. You've done everything. I mean, and, and you sit back and you say, Thank God it's finished. Dear friend, in much of the same way, Jesus once and for all did what he needed to do to save sinners from their sin. He went to Calvary, stretched forth his arms. He bled and died, was buried and on the third day rose again, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He did something the prophets could never do. He came back from the dead. And dear friend, in doing so, he proved to the world that he is who he says he is. He is Jesus, a more than excellent Savior. He is more excellent than the prophets. He is the greatest prophet. He is the Messiah. My question to you this morning is simply this. Do you know him? The first three verses of this letter to the Hebrews, I mean, it's like a stallion busting out of the gate to say that Jesus is greater than any preacher you've ever heard. And the proclamations that he proclaimed is salvation once for all. Dear friend, I want to ask you a question because there's someone in here today, there are many in here today, for whatever reason, you're, you're part of one of three, three people here today. Here they are. Number one, you're either born again. You know that if you died today, you know that you'd go to heaven. You like your pastor. You could swing over hell on a dry corn stalk. I mean, you know that. That's you. But here's the problem. You're missing your quiet time. You're missing your devotion time. And culture has impacted you to where there was a time in your life, brother or sister, where you were closer to God than you are today. You suffer from the same thing Hebrews warns against. Dear friend, I want to ask you to get right with God. Come back to Him. Number two, there are some here today that have been listening and been hearing and say, yes, historically, I believe Jesus was a real figure. I I believe he was a real figure. And I believe he did great things, and I believe that he was a prophet. But for, for some reason or another, you have yet, you have neglected to trust him as your Savior. You've neglected it. You suffer from the same things the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. You need to come to Jesus. You need to settle that in your heart. And then number three, you're here today, and you just flat out reject it. You've heard the message. You've heard it. You've heard it. You've heard it. You've heard it. 
but you reject the message. And here's the reason why. Because you heard it, but you never understood it. Dear friends, I'm telling you, you suffer from the same problem the Hebrews that didn't believe suffered from. Whether you like it or not, you're suffering from an illness called religion. And the religion that you hold to is a religion of science, humanism, hedonism. And dear friend, there's no joy in that. The end of that is death and destruction. The cure for that is by faith, trusting Jesus Christ. And dear friend, I want to give you that opportunity today. Stop playing games with God. Recognize God is who He says He is. That He sent His Son Jesus to do what He says He did. And Jesus is proclaimed and is definitely more greater than anything you can ever imagine. He is the more excellent Savior. Let's bow for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. And today, that's something you'd like to do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus? You don't have to say it out loud. Say it in your heart. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning, I ask you to save me. This morning, I repent of my sins, and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name.